Welcome back to the podcast for staying ahead in business. From company growth strategies to personal growth stories, here you'll get insights from the best minds in modern marketing. For more information on our guests, our in-house model, or to subscribe, head to our website, oliver.agency. Enjoy the growth podcast. Today, I have great pleasure in welcoming Kate Davies, the marketing director of The Guardian, who recently celebrated its 200th anniversary, or I think is actually still celebrating its 200th anniversary, uh, The Guardian, that is, not Kate. Kate has um, only 20 years experience directing the marketing for some of the UK and Europe's best loved B2C brands and causes. Obviously, currently The Guardian and has been for the last four years, but has also been the marketing director at London Zoo. Innovative, creative and results driven, Kate has been pivotal in leading the Guardian's strategy for both commercial growth and brand affinity. Today, it's one of the most trusted news brands in the world and is regularly celebrated for its reader-funded approach and digital maturity. Welcome, Kate. Thank you, Sharon. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. Oh, absolute pleasure. I've been looking forward to this one. So let's dive straight in. We know that The Guardian has an incredibly strong brand, not just in its category, but against any major brand in the UK. So for you, what part has brand played in The Guardian's amazing growth story? I think you really can't talk about The Guardian without sort of thinking about the brand. And and I think when we talk about brand at The Guardian, we're really talking about our values and our principles and, and our editorial brand. And that that's sort of different, actually, in terms of how you sort of think about the role of brand. It's been completely sort of pivotal in the story of The Guardian. I sort of think about a few things. I, outside our editor-in-chief's office, Catherine Viner's office, she has a poster that says, now more than ever, you need The Guardian. And we think it dates from about the 1970s. And it's from a sort of an A-frame that you'd see outside a newsagent. And that, for me, is is the sort of core point about The Guardian and the brand is that even from an A-frame in the 1970s, talking about the importance of The Guardian to the 1986 points of view advert or Three Pigs in 2012, we've been sort of core to those uh, beliefs and, and those values. And it's been the same story for that period of time. And, and you think about the change that we've weathered in that period and the growth and the kind of you know move from a, a print organisation to a, a digital organisation. And throughout all of that, there have been these sort of iconic moments for the brand and it has all come from our, our values, essentially, as set out by kind of CP Scott all those years ago. So brand is completely part of the DNA of The Guardian. I think that's an interesting point. I mean, you are, I think, one of the original purposeful brands and actually have so much credibility in that space. Can you talk to us about the role of purpose as it pertains to The Guardian? Yeah, I mean, you know, we like to say, probably slightly annoyingly, that we, you know, we were purposeful before that became a thing. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> definitely before it was, uh, it was a cool thing to be. But seriously, I, you know, the incredible honour or, or the privilege that we have is that we have this rich editorial sort of grounding and principles and, and these, these values that have been established for over 100 years of honesty, integrity, courage, and a sense of fairness to our readers and the community. And there couldn't be a sort of a richer source of inspiration to draw on, really, for our marketing and how we how we engage our readers. So for us, purpose really comes from the values that have been set out. And I think the things that we try to do through our, our marketing are to be authentic to that, to be in step with how our readers are feeling and what they're experiencing in the world. 
I think we are, you know, always very keen to draw on that rich editorial sort of substance, you know, for our language, for our creative approaches, for, for everything we do in, in our marketing. And so for us, purpose really is, you know, I know everybody says this, but it is it's sort of weaved into the work we do. And that's sort of true of how we work with our editorial colleagues on campaigns. And when we're sort of going in to think about a new brand sort of position or, or anything like that. Yeah, I think, you know, that's sort of for us is how we start with purpose. So with purpose being at the heart of the Guardian's brand, how does that inform your, I suppose, your business model? You know, where every other newspaper or publisher was sticking up paywalls and starting to charge uh, for all sorts of content very early in the digital kind of evolution, the Guardian went a very different direction. Yeah, that's exactly it. So there was the Guardian has a the Scott Trust who have been, you know, set up to ensure that the Guardian thrives in perpetuity. What that means is we're not driven by profit. That's very different to, you know, not needing to make a profit or not wanting to make a, a profit. It is just that, you know, philosophically, we are not driven by profit in the same way that other media organisations are. And what that's meant for us as an organisation is that our free and open model has become one of the kind of founding principles and one of the most important things about our journalism. I'm sure we'll talk more about COVID, but, you know, in moments of crisis, having free, open journalism is an incredibly important thing for people. And so that's, if that is part of our sort of core philosophy, the challenge as as a marketing team is to think about what is the compelling reason to give The Guardian money? You know, of course, we need money. Everybody needs money to do the great work that we want to do. And so for us, the answer is is really that people want to support us. And they want to do that either with a contribution, you know, just giving us money to, to say, we value what you're doing, keep doing it, or by subscribing to one of our brilliant products and saying, actually, you know, this is of great value to us and we want to pay for it but that does make us completely different our business model is completely different to to others we're not just selling something we're selling an idea and a set of values and beliefs and so of course I sort of come back to it that the only reason you're going to pay for the Guardian is because you really value our journalism and you really value what we do which is a very different position to start from. It is indeed and and, and you know you raised Covid I mean, how did The Guardian adapt? You know, what was the impact on The Guardian as a business? And how did your, how did all these things come together? You know, your values and your principles and that kind of purposeful centre to your brand. How did that all come to be during COVID? COVID is, of course, has been a completely disruptive force in all of our worlds and 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 at the guardian i think what i would say is that you know the guardian obviously is here to report the news and the news is volatile and you know we that we've weathered many many storms and we'll continue to do that but for us for covid i think the impact was much more sort of fundamentally how we were able to do our work and how the journalism was delivered and then of course how our readers were able to access us so we thought you know we saw two things happening very quickly we saw a retraction in our print sales and our uh, you know our ability to get our newsprint product out to market in the UK but we also saw absolutely incredible record breaking traffic to our site so we had 2.1 billion unique browsers on the Guardian website across 2020, which is quite extraordinary. So what you saw was sort of, you know, a very quick acceleration of what we'd started to see, which is people consuming news through our digital platforms, not being able to do it as much through our print products in the UK in particular. We had to sort of pivot very quickly from a marketing point of view. So leaning into this idea of, you know, how do you get 
your newspaper and for a lot of people print is still the most important way that they read the news so having to sort of talk a lot about home delivery and working out how we got the paper into people's hands at home having to use different marketing channels to find our readers so you know podcasts being a, a great example of love a podcast. Um, Love a podcast. And I, I think you probably saw that with lots of brands, you know, suddenly there was a lot of audio again and, and, and social obviously played a really big role. It's actually been very successful and we've managed to kind of drive really good levels of print subscriptions in the period. And now our newsstand is recovering as well, which is really promising. But it has also, of course, helped us with our digital first strategy and, and you know, and making sure that we're converting our, our reader revenues, which were up 43% on the year. So, it was an interesting period for us, but, you know, we were able to adapt, I think. So you've mentioned, I mean, a couple of things sort of come to mind. You've talked about the need as many, in fact, all brands needed to be much more agile during COVID in order to pivot their business models and be able to deliver what customers needed during that period of time. But I, you know, your business is always needing to be agile and always needing to be on its toes, you know, either careering from one kind of crisis or news story or or maybe even good news story occasionally. How is your marketing set up to deliver against that? Well, I I think... Obviously, I, you know, I have to say Oliver play a, a really big role in that for us. You know, having an in-house agency is, of course, a really brilliantly useful way to be agile and to create shorthands in the way you create work. And, you know, I, I would say also through the lens of COVID, having established some of the sort of, you know, the informal conversations that you're able to have with an in-house agency ahead of being plunged into remote work really helped because we were able to very quickly discuss what needed to happen. We were able very quickly to discuss how that needed to happen without any of the sort of anxiety of like, oh God, we're all remote now and it doesn't work. We've sort of had those established relationships. I think the other thing is you have to hold things lightly. We have learned through probably trial and error, trying to create a very polished thing, you know, a a marketing campaign that sort of spends four months in development and is tied up beautifully with a bow and delivered into the world and nobody can see it, you know, for four months. Quite often the world just moves too fast for that and for us. And so we've learned to be a bit quicker and we've learned to sort of have, you know, a few good ideas that we can get into the world quickly rather than one sort of big idea that takes four months and, you know, lands in the world too late. So I think we've changed our approach and I think having an in-house agency has helped us to do that. And then, then remotely, the teams have been incredible. They've adapted so brilliantly to remote working and so brilliantly to understanding what needs to happen with the business that um, it's endlessly impressive, I think, how people have coped in the last year. Yes, remote working for everyone has been an enormous change. I mean, for you personally, what's that meant for you having been, you know, working from home for the last year? I mean, it's been bonkers, hasn't it? I, I think it's, um, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I've, uh, I've got two kids they're a bit older so you know I've I've always felt sort of slightly with colleagues who have got preschoolers or you know or or very young children I think they've really had a tough time I mean mine can take themselves off and do things but it's been really challenging I think some of the unexpected challenges were around you know how it feels to be a team and how much shared understanding there is as a team and how we sort of manage each other in a room we manage the mood of the team or we all understand what's going on. I think what was striking to me is I suddenly felt like I was just having sort of lots of individual conversations 
And that need to create a shared sense of, well, what's going on in the office? What's the sort of feeling? What's the mood? You know, how are things going? It's very difficult to recreate that virtually. What would be the things that you would like to keep as the world, well, maybe the UK, tentatively returns to some kind of office life, fingers crossed, slightly over the summer and maybe continuing into the autumn? What kind of things would you like to retain that have been good about this way of working? think there's loads isn't there and I and I think it's it's given different individuals different sort of things to find valuable and and that in itself has been really interesting so you know one person not commuting is somebody else's sort of spending time with the kids and, and that's really varied you know for me I think I have loved being able to be more present for my children when they get home from school you know that hasn't hasn't been something that's been part of our experience for a lot of years for better or worse, you know, sometimes, sometimes they're too present, and I'm too present in their life. But but no, I, I, you know, I, so I think being being able to be around your kids that, you know, that that flexibility has been really amazing. I think, you know, there's been lots of joy for me in rediscovering my community and spending more time where I live, not just sort of, you know, arriving back home. And I'm sure everybody has felt this, but there does feel like that renewed sense of sort of a little community around you, which is yeah. quite lovely. Yeah, no, indeed, indeed. I mean, not many, many lessons learned. And I think, you know, taking the best of what we've learned about remote working or home working back into a, a much more flexible workplace will be, you know, an interesting thing to behold, seeing this unfold over the next year or two. So what I hate the word new normal, but you know, where we end up as a society as a result of this pandemic is going to be endlessly interesting, I think. So in terms of creativity, I mean, let's talk about the 200 years of The Guardian. What does 200 years of The Guardian mean to you and mean to the business? It's it's amazing, isn't it? 200 years is is an incredible milestone. I feel sort of personally just very privileged to be part of the team that gets to to be around at the Guardian to celebrate this anniversary. You know, I realise there are many that have come before us and many that will come after us. And, you know, it just happens there's a slice of Guardian people right there at the moment. So it's been really lovely to do that. It's very hard to throw a virtual birthday party. We've all tried to do it this year, haven't we? And it's it's a difficult thing to pull off and achieve and to get everybody feeling really excited by it. But I, I, I think, I hope we've done that. For me, I've enjoyed reflecting and taking a moment to just remember and reflect on the 200 years of journalism that has been you know whether that's sort of re-immersing myself in some of the the great stories and reminding myself of the stuff that I absolutely loved the Guardian for before I joined the Guardian and also finding out some really weird totally new stuff so there was a story around sort of in World War II the senior team at the Guardian worried that the Nazis would invade and we would lose all of our cash and the Guardian would be shut down and we wouldn't be able to report uh, invested some of our money in an emerald necklace that they uh, planned to sort of smuggle out of the country and I just I just thought that was just brilliant and, and only somewhere like the Guardian do you get that rich amazing history it's all I thought you were going to say and then it ended up on the Titanic and then the Titanic sunk and you know it was one of those kind yeah, of necklaces somebody flung it into the sea at the end no I, yeah. I, I think I think the panic was over they sold the necklace they reinvested the the, the funds back in the journalism but yeah I, I, I there's there's so much amazing history at the Guardian I've had the great delight of going down into our archives and seeing Snowden's smashed laptop and you know some of the oh, early wow. yeah I mean it's it's been brilliant so for, for me what a privilege to kind of explore the Guardian's journalism and, and what a moment to think about, OK, well, what's 
what's next and how do we how do we use all of that and bring it into our work so it's been a lovely project to work on and you know creativity I mean you've got a campaign out at the moment for the 200 years of the Guardian there's some quite quite punchy headlines and one of the things that I've always been you know ever since we started working with you always been suitably impressed by is is the level of bravery I think we we talked about this before you know that the fine line between uh, stupidity and bravery but you know that the, the bravery of some of the statements that the guardians prepared to make in pursuit of all of the things that you've mentioned before whether it's kind of strong moral compass and upholding your values and the independence of journalism but talk to me about how you how you step into that as a marketing director and go yes let's run that one yeah yeah i mean i, I wish it was sort of as simple as somebody saying it's that one and I go yeah let's run it you know let's I, I <laughs> of course it's I you know as you say it is it's a very fine line and I think we have a responsibility to our readers and that responsibility is we absolutely need to reflect the guardian they know and the guardian they love and and the things that they, they hold really dear about us and, and a lot of that is that we challenge people and that we will be antagonistic when we need to be we will hold powerful people to account you know so we have that responsibility there is also a balance in in just sort of going too far and and trying to be sort of provocative and and for us i think that's the conversation we have a lot of the time it has to feel true to the guardian it has to feel we always have a sort of saying which would drive people nuts I'm sure but we always say you know does it feel guardian does it feel like something we should be saying do we have a right to play in that space is this something our readers recognize and and love about us and again you know I I come back to the the editorial values but that's a great benchmark and that's a great way of sense checking our work it's always important to us to be distinctive as well and you know if we hold our work up and say it could be from any other news brand then we've probably failed. I like the um the bit about you know whether you feel like you have permission to play in that space or to say the things that you're just about to say. You know that's probably a good benchmark for any brand I would imagine but you know in pursuit of being kind of authentically yourself as a brand are there kind of key lessons are there kind of things that that you would pull out that all marketeers should be kind of cognizant of. You know, we've had all the every brand putting not every brand, but lots of brands putting the you know the black square up for Black Lives Matter, but not having any substance behind it. You know, what are your views on how to be authentically in your space? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a very difficult place at the moment, isn't it, for brands, for marketing teams across you know across all different sectors. I think for us, there's a few things. You know, the first thing I'd say is really interrogate your values, really interrogate what everybody's signed up to and, and what you've said you're about. And I think if you're true to those, and I think if you sort of stick to that and you stay sort of relatively close to the proximity of your core values, you know, you won't go too far wrong. And I think it's demonstrable, isn't it? You know, this is stuff you've you've set out that you want to do and you've talked about. So I think being true to that, I think the watch out there is probably don't stray too far away from that in pursuit of a different cause or or something else that happens to be happening in the world. It's okay for you not to have to be in all those spaces. I think also in the spirit of turning 200, I think the second thing I'd say is, you know, look back. I've really enjoyed this moment of reflection of thinking about how we've behaved in the past, what we've said, what we've done, what we've achieved. And that, again, it gives you license to sort of say, you know, I have confidence to say these things about our brand and I have confidence that we still adhere to those values. Perhaps people don't do that enough, you know, that sort of looking back and saying, how can that inform what we do now? 
people sort of think everything behind us is fusty and old and irrelevant. You know, we, we must do the new shiny thing. But actually, our past can teach us a lot about what we should say. The other thing is be light on your feet. I think <laughs> be light on your feet because you can get terribly stuck, I think, in an idea or you can get very stuck in a sort of a, a moment in time and spend a lot of time agonizing over it. And actually, you know, if it doesn't feel right or, you know, the work isn't coming naturally or you've just got that slight hesitation, I think that's okay. Move on, you know, move on, think of something else. There's a better idea around the corner. No, indeed, indeed. And just, you know, final kind of area to talk about, you know, in terms of marketing strategy, you've been on a very specific sort of strategic journey, which feels like it's coming to a a point of fruition and you're starting to look forward as to what the next kind of three to five years might mean. You know, what would you say have been the main successes for The Guardian over the last kind of three years? Because I know you've had this break-even strategy and, and actually we haven't even talked about you know, I always see The Guardian as quite an English brand, but actually it has very strong international reach. So, you know, talk to me about where you think you've come to in terms of marketing strategy and success to date. Yeah, I, I think we're on a we're on a journey. And I think we've, you know, had enormous success in terms of pivoting into a reader revenue strategy away from predominantly ad funded model and print funded model into a, a reader revenue funded model. That's been a, a huge success and more so because we don't have a paywall and we've remained true to our values. So I think that has been the sort of the backbone of The Guardian's growth over the last sort of four or five years. As you say, you know, we've been an international brand for well over a decade now, actually. And, and we're seeing sort of two thirds of our readership coming from outside of the UK. And what's really, I think, heartening is we now get support from over 180 countries around the world. So that's people who are opting to pay for The Guardian through a subscription or contribution across, you know, 180 countries. So I hope what that tells us is the model works and and that people believe in it and they believe in keeping journalism sort of free and open for all. So that's I think that's that's been a huge success as well. And I think that's where we're headed is a continuation of that strategy, further digital growth, furthering our digital reader revenues, which are of course an important part of of how we sustain ourselves. Mm. No, indeed. I look forward to seeing what The Guardian does next over the next two to three years, hopefully in strong partnership with ourselves. So, you know, as a last kind of few words, do you have any advice for our listeners? You know, they're all going to be working on their brand and hopefully growing and succeeding over the next few years, driving growth of their own. If you were to offer yourself or anyone else advice walking into a brand growth job, what kind of advice would you offer? What are your kind of key takeaways? I think, again, and I, I probably sound like I'm banging the same drum, but I think align your marketing values with your organizational values. So, you know, start there. Don't lock yourself in a room away from the other people doing other interesting things in your business. I think, you know, spend a lot of time understanding what the fabric of the organization is and align your, your marketing around that. I think, you know, just being open, brave and challenging and that thought about staying light on your feet I think is a good one I I do think we can we can become terribly consumed by the act of marketing itself and the world meanwhile carries on and I think to create work that truly lives in culture and is interesting to people I think you need to be keeping your eyes and ears open and and, and responding to what in our case our readers are feeling and thinking and, and hopefully creating work that they feel is meaningful to them and isn't just coming out of a marketing team somewhere in the Guardian. 
Yes, exactly. You know, your marketing and your editorial teams, you know, work very symbiotically hand in hand as as one team. And I do think in many organisations, marketing can become quite distant from the product and services that they're selling. Uh, So I think that's a really key piece of advice. Kate, I, you know, I can't thank you enough for coming on. It's a personal brand for me. Love listening to you talk about it and your passion for it. And I really look forward to seeing, you know, what comes next. And hopefully we can do another podcast later in the year and talk more about your plans for the future. I'd love that. Thank you for having me, Sharon. Thank you for listening to this episode of Oliver's Growth 2021 series. We'd love to hear your opinions or pass on any questions to our guests please reach out to us via our LinkedIn page at Oliver. Alternatively, you can read more about our work or contact us via our website, oliver.agency. We hope you can join us next time.